Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Tim Chavez from Faith Matters. Today's episode is a special one. We've been working hard to gather voices that could help us process the war in Ukraine and the ongoing atrocities that the Russian government has inflicted upon the Ukrainian people. Like you, we've wondered what the reality is like on the ground in Ukraine right now, how we can help, and if our faith might have something to offer in terms of how we approach what's going on, both in our hearts and with our hands. So we've put together what we believe is a fantastic lineup of people to help us explore some of those questions. We'll give a little bit more background on each before we jump into the conversations we had with them. But in order, the people we spoke with were Yaroslav Chernyuk, a church member who's living and serving in Kiev right now, Austin Walters, who served a mission to Ukraine and has been raising funds for humanitarian efforts, Maria Manjos, a Ukrainian currently living in the U.S., and Patrick Mason, a professor of history and scholar of peacebuilding and violence. So first off, you'll hear our conversation with Yaroslav. We only had a very brief time with him as he spoke with us from his home in Kiev. As you can imagine, his schedule is very constrained by the circumstances and by the incredibly brave and difficult work that he's doing providing aid to families in need. We'll follow up that conversation with the others. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. Could you just introduce us a little bit and, and or introduce yourself a little bit and tell us where you're from, where you live right now? Yeah, uh, my name is Yaroslav. Uh, I live in Kiev, Ukraine. At this time, I'm actually in Kiev, in Ukraine. Can you talk about your experience with the beginning of the invasion and how you decided to stay? Well, actually, uh, me and my wife, we didn't think even to leave the Kiev because like, we know that Kiev is our hometown and it's not like an option to leave, actually. We could, but we didn't. So we decided not to. Uh, basically, we decided to be useful for the people and for the country like where we live. And we have to do as much as we can because uh, as me and my wife, we have some uh, what to offer pe- to people. And we're trying to like, you know, to help those people who are in need. And especially at this time when a lot of refugees uh, uh, coming back from different uh, cities around the Kiev, in Kiev, so they need help. So pretty much... Uh, our last, what, 21 day been like one day without end. So what we did is just like, you know, buying uh, groceries, uh, medicine, clothes, and delivering to the people, like uh, to those who are needed. Wow. What is, what is the situation in your particular neighborhood right now? Well, like uh, I live like in some uh, neighborhood inside of the Kiev, and I'd say like uh, probably like, 50 to 70 percent of the population of this neighborhood still in Kiev and they like guarding their areas like defending and trying to help like people are so friendly and uh, I haven't seen uh, those people so united like right now they're really truly united wow can you talk a little bit about your ward are you in touch with your your Uh, ward family 
Well, kind of yes and kind of not. Like, you know, because of the COVID, like uh, we choose to be like online part of the work. So uh, pretty much I haven't seen a lot of like members only like via the Zoom uh, meetings. And this is it pretty much. So like I know some people are here and we do help them as well. Like uh, they saying like, hey, uh, we need that on all this. We just do like, you know, what they need. Now, how how are you hearing about needs other than, it sounds like through the ward, but do you also have other sources to find out who needs what and where? Yeah, we do. We, we do. Like, we know that Instagram helps a lot, like, kind of like the, uh, like a spread of the word, like by people like in our neighborhood, also with Kolya and like we one of the family who helping, uh, like working together with Kolya, like, you know, like do the volunteer work and uh, <clears throat> So pretty much like it comes, I don't know how, but like it comes like, for example, like yesterday we had like 12 families on the left bank to help and one family of seven of like refugees from Irpien on the right bank. On the right bank, we also have like kind of like family like us who are helping, who are ready to help. Because like for, for us, it's kind of difficult to cross the bridges at this point. Like, you know, it takes a lot of time. So we decided to split our efforts right and left wow has so, the, go ahead Tim. sorry i was gonna ask so has the economy just shut down i assume most people that are helping now normally would be would be working uh during the day so how are you handling how are you handling that well it's funny because like my work still like keep going like you know like okay. it's not uh, as used to be but it still is going like i work online uh some people trying to work but it's hard because like uh, during the day, we we can hear like several times sirens uh, from the bombing, and it's just like terrible. Like you know, we got used to it, but still, it's not okay at all. Like I have no idea what we're gonna do after the war, because like still, like you know, we collecting all these feelings, and some day it's like we need to do something with them. So probably more likely, people would need some help, like med- uh, like medical help, more likely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that makes but, so much sense. Yeah, but like people do work like, you know, like hiding, working, hiding, working, helping, like it's war. Like, yeah, I'm smiling right now, but like it's a war. What else we can say? Like it's it's truly it's not like a military operation. It is a war. It's like Russian in like went with war against Ukraine. Like we're defending our land. We're defending our homes. We're defending our lives from Russians, like just like Russians doing like bad stuff right now. And I'm glad that all the world sees that. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I know you, you don't have much time and need to run, but I would love to ask you, you know, we, we, we're praying, we're sending money and we're rallying, but what, what would help lift your burden right now while you're in the middle of all of it? Well, guys, like you do like really good job. Like we really feel your prayers. We feel your love. We feel your cares. We feel your support. Really, like I know that a lot of LDS members, non-LDS members are ready to help. We need all the help, like any kind of like we're not like nobody is obligated to do. Like we're trying as much as we can with any uh, resources we have. At this like difficult time and difficult period of time in Ukraine, we need any help. Like, cause like guys, I I really didn't know, uh, like didn't even think that I'm gonna see these people. Like you know, refugees. It's just terrible. Like really, they 
like escaping their houses without anything like guys literally anything like you know like maybe passport in a yeah. pocket and this is it <laughs> yeah yeah it's terrible like you know <laughs> it's yeah. crazy what are the what are the greatest needs you're seeing at this at this moment is it food water medical supplies uh like we need everything right now actually like people like you, you like <clears throat> since you don't have a refrigerator you can't uh, mm-hmm. like you know kind of like collect the food and eat by like day by day so you need like maybe we can bring some food like for three days for five days for a week depending like especially we have a lot of elderly elderly people like those guys really like you know they have some needs medical needs like handicaps and like they just stay at home like a few days ago we went visited like a lady on a wheelchair guys what can she do like she, she can't do anything on a wheelchair yeah like her kids left and she stayed in kiev so this is it wow yeah i know so, there's so ma- i know there's so many practical realities but i want to ask you just one sort of faith yeah, philosophical ahead. question how has your have you felt your faith guide your efforts or sustain you in in some way during during this time uh are you talking about the faith your faith yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. like well it helped me a lot like you know uh like everything what I was taught during my life. So pretty much like you can use right now, all the abilities, all the attributes of like Christ-like attributes, like you can use it right now. Like people, same as always, but they need help. They need support, any kind of like, some need like like, uh, food, some need medical, and some need like a uh spiritual support as well because they have to think about like lord and the atonement and everything else it's not like it's not going to disappear it's still here but you need to keep going with that so like yeah anything you want to say about ukraine you want people to know about ukraine about ukraine the ukrainian people uh, yeah you're speaking primarily yeah you're speaking primarily to americans primarily to latter-day saints anything that you would like us guys like people of ukraine need your help like any kind of help Uh, prayer works perfect uh donation works perfect thoughts works perfect everything works perfect just keep going keep up with your good work what you do we really feel and know what you're doing like really and just keep up don't like if we're not even sometimes talking to you don't think we're not like seeing that we do see thank you guys very much for thank you thank you so much and have a good one and keep in touch right good luck we're praying for you yeah okay next you're going to hear us talk with austin walters Austin served a mission in Ukraine, and after completing an MBA at Harvard Business School, got into the world of finance and venture capital. He's turned those skills over the past few weeks into fundraising for humanitarian efforts in Ukraine. Here's our conversation with Austin. One place that I thought, or we thought, might be might be good to start. We know that, I mean, you have a very, uh, a, a, sort of some varied experiences relating to Ukraine. You served a mission there. Uh, you've studied international relations. I know, and I know you've you have some thoughts on, or maybe not some thoughts, but some uh, contextual sort of information that might help Americans like ourselves that are seeing this but don't have a lot of background on Ukraine and Russia and their relationship uh, that might help us understand a little bit more what's going on. Could you could you share some of some of that? 
I, I, I can, yes. And I'm not, um, not a complete expert, but I'll draw on, on some experts in my comments and I'll discuss longer term context and, and then some context leading up to why, why things have escalated so much in, uh, in recent years um, in Eastern Ukraine and Ukraine. So the longer term context, um, Ukraine is almost two, uh, two separate countries, uh, demographically and linguistically. So I served my mission in, in Donetsk, uh, uh, the Donetsk mission, Ukraine. Donetsk is a, a, a regional capital of Eastern Ukraine. There's a river that runs north to south, um, sort of northwest to southeast in Ukraine called the Dnieper. And east of the Dnieper, uh, by and large, it's a Russian-speaking population. Um, Kiev is just west of Dnieper. Most folks in Kiev speak Russian, but it's really um, a west part of Western Ukraine. And uh, under collectivization of farming in uh, the early 20th century, uh, Stalin actually starved many millions of Ukrainians uh, in that process. Um, so there was a population vacuum. Uh, and secondly, it was part of Soviet policy at the time to move inner Russia, Russians into Soviet satellite states in, in, in force. And so this is why most of the former Soviet satellite states have significant Russian populations in them. And these two, the Russians, are known as Russians abroad. And oh. it's a fundamental pillar of Russian pol foreign policy to protect Russians abroad. So like 30% of Kazakhstan is Russian, right? They're not Kazakh, they're Russians, right? And, and in Ukraine, it's something like that, if not higher. Um, it may be closer to 40%. Uh, millions and millions of Russians were were placed in Eastern Ukraine, in particular the Donbass region, which is Donetsk, Lugansk, right? So these regions that Putin has signed into being part of Russia now, right. in a way, were made part of Russia in the 1930s, at least ethnically, linguistically, demographically, politically, right, culturally. <laughs> and this, in his hour-long speech right before the invasion, is something that he talked about at length, is, is our people are under attack. Right wow. by by Ukrainians and their um, which is really a puppet government of the West, right? And so we need to we need to protect them. So there's a lot longer term context there uh, that's important to understand. In uh, so I served my mission in 2003 uh, from 2003 to 2005, and uh, that that's when the color revolutions were happening in some of the former Soviet satellite states where there was a democra um, democratic uh, movement and the color revolution in Ukraine was the orange revolution. There was an Eastern Ukrainian candidate for president and a Western Ukrainian candidate. The Western Ukrainian candidate was married to an American, was pro-Western, sort of ran on an agenda of, you know, maybe joining the EU in some sense, or at least strengthening ties. The Eastern candidate, the opposite, right? Strengthening ties with Putin. And Eastern candidate was elected. Western Ukrainians, particularly young people like Maria, <laughs> stormed mm -hmm. Kiev wearing orange and they camped out there um, and protested for uh, over a year. And, and he, the Eastern candidate was elected again. 
They stormed the Capitol again, protested. Finally, the Western candidate was elected. Um, this, this angered Putin. And this was, you know, 2004. So in 2014, um, uh, Russia just takes Crimea. Um, and, <laughs> and, the, and the world condemns them and, and we push sanctions on Russia and so on. But uh, it's, it's an extremely geopolitically strategic um, asset for Russia. I think it's one of their only warm water ports. They had some submarines there that Ukraine was renting them, these submarine facilities. Um, and so uh, I think that Putin was encouraged by uh, the fact that he was, he was able to take Crimea and, and arm separatists in the Donetsk, Lugansk regions um, and, and create sort of a, a, a front, a line. Um, and so that's been happening for eight years now in the, in the, in the last year, this is what I didn't appreciate that, um, Anna Pechenkina, uh, the, who's a professor at Utah state university, Russian speaking, grew up in Ukraine. She teaches political science, uh, pointed out that there are three, three, um, immediate triggers that occurred in 2021 that, really? uh, probably upped the ante and um, caused Russia to decide to in just invade Ukraine as a whole, right? Which I, I think um, few people were expecting. Um, and so uh, the first is the, uh, it's a longer term westward shift inside of Ukraine, but it's accelerated lately. So with Zelensky's election, in uh, just just a, a couple of years ago, um, he ran on this platform like Viktor Yanukovych, the the previously West Western pro Western candidate. But he's actually taken some steps. So clearly, he's a person of integrity. Um, he uh, uh, mounted a campaign against Russian agents in Ukraine uh, in early 2021. He closed three pro Russia TV channels in Ukraine and froze the assets of Viktor Medvedchuk, uh, who's um, an oligarch, uh, kind of pro-Russian oligarch figure. And they think that Medvedchuk is the godfather of Putin's daughter. So oh, wow. this, this uh, uh, upsets Putin. Um, the, uh, the, the pipeline um, between uh, Germany and Russia Olaf Scholz, uh, the the chancellor um, of Germany, uh, never came down and said that the pipeline was was under threat. Prior to this, they they've shut it down now. But but his comments prior to that were always very very careful, mm-hmm. and he's he's not a um, kind of uh, a hawk, right? A sort of you know strong stance against Russia political party like in the United States right now, right? So there was a calculation on timing of perhaps we'll have a, a softer response from, you know, Germany and the United States, right? Russia, there's no time like the present. Um, and then uh, in prior to Russia's invasion of Crimea, 
um, and the backing of separatists in eastern Ukraine, about 30% of the Ukrainian population supported joining the EU and NATO. After that, so, so prior to Russia invading a couple of weeks ago, that, per, that percentage was up to 60. Wow. So that's largely of Putin's own making, right? Because there, it, it, he uh, increased the, uh, the threat, right? That I think Ukrainians felt and caused this reaction and, and sort of further westward leaning reaction. Um, and, and again, that's something that's just been getting stronger over time. And then uh, the, in the early days of the uh, 2014 conflict, when Ukrainians were, were being killed, Russia's military is more powerful. <laughs> and so there was this, there was this concern and, and Zelensky um, or, or the, the president of, of Ukraine really had um, his hands tied in some ways um, and had to come to some kind of a ceasefire agreement. And um, that's known as the Minsk, the Minsk II agreement. And that was signed on in February of 2015. And um, Anna points out that no government in Ukraine could implement this agreement because it would de facto grant Russia legal veto over Ukraine's foreign policy through its Donbass proxies. Um, and so it's sort of this impossibility. Um, and but it's a, a basis for Russia saying you're you're not upholding this agreement. Um, and it 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 would have uh completely destroyed Ukraine's territorial integrity uh for, for Ukraine to to do that. Um so they're trying to buy time. And Putin, who is an attorney by background, he's he's trained in the law. Um, so when he locks up an oligarch like uh, Harakovsky or or does whatever, or if you listen to his hour-long speech, it's a legal case, right? It, he's using that as a basis for, um, you know, them being corrupt. Uh, so those are some uh, kind of longer-term and then shorter-term reasons, uh, at least that Russia is giving for, uh, for why they're invading. I think at a high, high level, long, long term, there's also the fact that um, when Kiev was founded, Moscow was a swamp in the forest. There, there was nothing. Um, it, it, is, it is the mother of Russia. It's, it's the, the foundation. It's like, I don't know, Jamestown or, or, or Boston uh, for the United States. Right. Yeah. Probably Boston. Wow. Um, it's kind of the spiritual home uh, of Russia. And, and so that that matters. Um, I think Ru- Russians have a have some a, a sense of grievance about that. And and also think that the fact that Ukraine is its own country is a historical accident anyway. Um, so that's so helpful. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. That's great few minutes to just understand that there's so much more going on than, you know, the headlines right now. Um, Can you talk about some of the projects that you've been working on in the last couple of weeks? Yeah. So I, uh, I served my mission in, in Ukraine, as I mentioned, 2003 to 2005 really came to, uh, to love the people uh, that I uh, got to know. And, and uh, a few years ago felt impressed to start reconnecting. 
with folks. So the, my mission was in the pre-Facebook era, at least for me. I was maybe a late adopter uh, and we didn't have smartphones, so definitely. So uh, so it's I haven't kept in as close of touch as I would like, but over the years I've, I've connected with um, folks who are my age, maybe half a dozen or so. And uh, a few years ago, I felt prompted to just strengthen those connections um, maybe in part because of what was happening in Eastern Ukraine over the last eight years. And many of the, the people that I checked in on and asked about had, had migrated West to Kiev. And of, of course we built the temple, um, none too soon, right. <laughs> sort of in advance of that happening. And so, uh, Zach and Maria were married there and, um, I, I got to attend that and, um, so when this happened, I uh, li- listened to Putin's speech, felt very discouraged. And, and I think that was a Thursday night. Um, and then Friday, the invasion happened. And, and I just felt um, just discouraged all day and uh, woke up the next morning on a Saturday and, and had a very strong, specific prompting that, uh, so I'm, manage a venture capital fund in my day job and spend a lot of my time right now raising money for the fund. And it, and we invest in healthcare technology. So I'd spent a, a week traveling, doing that. And the prompting that I, I got was, okay, now take all of the, the, your energy that you're spending on that and devote that this weekend to Ukraine and, and raise, raise money for you know, and for humanitarian aid. So that's what I, what I did. And I uh, got organized. It's not the most sophisticated campaign, but, uh, but it's something. And, uh, and so it's a, I don't know, did I share the link with you of the Facebook fundraising campaign? We have, we've seen it. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's really just a crowd, a crowdfunding campaign where I surveyed the folks that I'm connected with in Ukraine and some who are now stateside, but, but who are from there, right. But they have a a sister who's a surgeon in Sumi performing on people that are, that are wounded in the subways, right. uh, People like that, that are uh, tied in immediately and, and to understand what are the organizations that are best to be supporting given what's happening right now. And and so that's uh, the fundraising page has just a list of organizations on it and with the links to their, to their donation pages. So it's a resource that, that says here are the organizations that are vetted and legitimate. Um, Cause there are a lot of links and Venmo profiles mm-hmm. being thrown out there. And so how do you know where, where are you going to get the biggest bang for your buck? This is an attempt to just say, here's a vetted list of 10 or so organizations. One of the, the 10, organization is really an organization. It's a collection of these families that I know personally in Ukraine on the ground, uh, Kolya being one, uh, Kolya and Anya Bogdan. Uh, Kolya served in my mission. Anya was the daughter of one of the branch presidents uh, in Gorlovka, uh, a wonderful family, both leaders in their communities, both trustworthy, both spending significant personal resources to care for those in immediate need right now. 
groceries, uh, medicine, um, people who are in, in the more vulnerable areas of Kiev, both families have moved to the Kiev area, right? It's become kind of a, a, a catch-all for Ukrainians in the last eight years from the East, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at least those that don't want to migrate, migrate to Moscow someday. So um, I, I also send it to them. And, uh, and so we have raised, uh, a, between Facebook Venmo and, and I don't know, uh, how, how much exactly in direct terms, but we've raised something like $70,000, uh, that I know of. Um, and it's, I wish we could do more. Uh, it's a drop in the bucket, but it goes a long way in Ukraine. And, and my hope is that you know, one or two starfish is better than none, right? And yeah. and, if, and if all Americans who are, have some connection to Ukraine were to do this, uh, then it would make a meaningful grassroots difference. Yeah, I'm just wondering, can you give us? Can you tell us a little bit more? I think it's hard to imagine what what it actually looks like in these cities, like what what people actually need and what you know what the real immediate issues are if you're staying. So where is the, like, what is the money paying for? What do they, what do like actual families need right now? So most of our efforts and, and of course there's kind of a, there's a layer of, of, of military aid that um, is outside the scope of this, right? Because I'm, I felt that I was unofficially representing both the church and my company and, um, just wanted to be careful uh, uh, about that. So we're, we're focused purely on humanitarian aid. So most of the organizations that are on our list are, are medical in nature. Um, The families that we're sending to uh, are, are buying food storage type staples. Um, And, and they're, they're buying them now and storing up for the vulnerable, many of whom, uh, have had their pension payments disrupted or their banking disrupted because of the conflict or cyber attacks. Um, and uh, many, many live check to check and the groceries and supplies are drying up okay. in, in the stores. So um, not it, just like here, right? Not everyone is on the same footing. Uh, some are more vulnerable than others. And, um, and the, the families that we're sending resources to uh, are uh, trying to get as, as much of these staple, shelf-stable supplies uh, that they can for the folks who are most vulnerable. And that, so it's, it's flour, it's beans, it's rice, it's um, things like that, that you'd expect in long-term food storage. And, and hopefully that provides some measure of food security while Ukraine, the, the, the state, you know, they're, they're working on a, a, a crop sowing program this spring right now. Um, they're, they're trying to um, sort of create zones where they can, you know, they're working, they're doing their part, of course, for, to, to try and uh, achieve food security. Uh, but it's it's a run on groceries right now as part of the problem, um, particularly in cities where the Russians have moved in because and the the the, milita- the Russian military is trying to secure these supermarkets right as as a store of food for them. Um, so there's it's it's dangerous and um, and people are starting to starve to death. Uh, there's also um, 
because it's a citizen soldiery in Ukraine alongside of the official military. Um, I mean, they've, they've handed out weapons um, and armor to, I don't know the exact number, but I, I believe it's possibly in the low millions. Um, it's at least, you know, several, several hundreds of thousands, many, many more than um, the number of so- Russian soldiers that have, that have come into Ukraine. Uh, and so uh, there are a lot of injuries and, um, and, and so um, basic first aid um, is a big part of, of what we're doing. That's the medical side of, of things. And so. Um, wow. And that's really awesome. helpful. I know it's yeah. early, but have you been able to see any direct impact yet from the money that you've, that you've sent? Absolutely. So there is an update I posted last Sunday with um, the, our, our campaign's ledger, just showing how much we had raised up to that point and where it had gone. Um, and then also a link to uh, an iCloud folder. And it's got, it's, it's filled to the gills with photos and videos of what's happening both um, militarily um, and, and they're very disturbing videos. So I, I you know, warn you um, that it's, it's fairly graphic. And, uh, but I, I feel it's important to witness <laughs> and, and tell them that we see what's happening yeah. and we're sorry. And, and then also just what they're doing personally, um, directly. And so you see videos of them delivering these things and you see the tears <laughs> on the faces of, of the people that are receiving this, this help. And, um, they're tough people. Um, uh, and so, and they, they have various resources that culturally, a lot of Russians, Ukrainians have dachas, summer gardens that they'll, they'll go to and grow things and they'll can. Um, and, and so they, they, they're actually much better, I think, with food storage than we are culturally um, yeah. at this point. They're they're resourceful, uh, tough people. But um, you know, in the 1930s, tens of billions of them were starved to death because of Russian policy, and that could happen again. Um, and so, I, I think doing what we can, you know, given how far we've come in right um, in the world. Uh, uh, there's a lot more we can do now, and and Holodomor, which is the term for the mass starvation in the in the early 20th century, um, there's a lot we can do to to stave that that kind of thing off. Social media didn't exist then; um, there were no missions in Ukraine at that time. Um, so, uh, I, uh, you know, between our efforts and 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 what the the state is doing, um, is I, I think Congress passed a, what is it? $13 billion bill last week. So that, that ought to help much of that would probably be material for the war effort, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, Austin, thank you so much for the knowledge that you shared for your spirit, for everything that you're doing to help. And we'll make sure to include the links um, so that people can, can donate through your, through your efforts as well. Thank you, Tim Aubrey. Great, great to see you both. Okay, this next conversation is with Maria Manjos. Maria is a freelance journalist based in Massachusetts, whose writing has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post Magazine, the Boston Globe, and other publications. You may also be interested to know that Maria's husband, Zach Davis, is the newest member of the Faith Matters executive team. 
At the time that we spoke with Maria, her parents were en route to the United States after fleeing their home in Kiev. You'll hear her speak a little bit about this journey. Thankfully, we can update you now to let you know that her parents have arrived safely and are with Maria's family in Boston. I wonder if just to start, could you just tell us a little bit about you, your family's connection to Ukraine and, you know, how, how far back does it go? And, and um, maybe just a little bit about how you started there. I was born and raised in Kiev, the capital, and um, my, yeah, my parents have spent most of their life there too. Um, my, yeah, my mother's uh, family's from a, a, a small village um, near Kiev. Um, my dad's uh, family's from Poltava, um, born and raised in Ukraine. For um, for many listeners, I think the sort of news over the past few weeks has thrust uh, Ukraine into into their minds in a way that it never has, you know, during and that's true for me even during during my lifetime. I wonder if you could maybe set the stage a little bit by talking about some early memories, you know, when you were a child growing up in Ukraine, what it was like there and just help paint the picture for us a little bit. Yeah. So, um, so I was born in 1985 in Kiev, Ukraine. Um, that was still during the Soviet Union. Um, my dad was a chemist. Um, he worked at the Academy of Sciences with semiconductors. My mom was sort of a goods trade specialist. And um, anyway, by 85, that was a year before Chernobyl. So one of the, you know, the first big historical thing that happened in my life was Chernobyl in 1986. And, um, you know, my family have told told me numerous stories um, about that time, but we, uh, you know, my mom evacuated with me. So it was, you know, women and a lot of women and children left. Um, so we, we actually went to Russia to St. Petersburg uh, at that time called Leningrad. Um, and my dad stayed behind. We were separated for about a year and, oh. you know, it was sort of um, fled to away from radiation. So I grew up uh, in Kiev. I went to a Polish, Ukrainian Polish gymnasium in the center of Kiev. I took a trolley bus route to school with my mom or my dad, and they took me on the way to work. Um, started learning English. I think there was always this emphasis on you got to start learning English as early as you can because, you know, it's always a good thing. You never know. Okay, there's always this orientation toward the West. Um, uh, and so languages uh, were a big part. I started learning French when I was in third grade or fifth grade. Um, English, I think maybe first grade. And Russian and Ukrainian were sort of um, spoken kind of simultaneously. Uh, my family was Russian speaking, but, you know, uh, after the Soviet Union, uh, collapse in 91 this you know there was sort of this uh embrace of ukrainian culture and heritage and language and uh ukrainian language became um you know a lot of schools kind of transitioned to ukrainian and you know all mm -hmm. i remember all my subjects were in ukrainian but at home i spoke russian so language both were you know we spoke uh both equally well and my dad traveled to 
Poland quite a bit to sell very, very random weird things like bees venom and safety pins, um, just like trade them at the, not trade, but sell them at, 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 a, at a big market. Um, and, um, and they did a lot of these trips with my mom. Um, so, yeah. So, and then they would come back and they would bring me, I remember very distinctly, I was very happy when they brought me a jar of Nutella. Um, in fact, it wasn't, it was like some sort of a off brand, but they had, had like this white swirl, um, like, a yeah, anyway, and I just ate it with a spoon out of a jar and they brought, would bring me a bundle of bananas because I, I don't think there were bananas in, in Kiev at the time. So that, that just kind of tells wow. you how scarce some things were. We had everything that we needed, but it was not a time of abundance by any means, um, yeah. I mean, we always had food, but, you know, it wasn't like a, you know, we had a few outfits and we had the food that we needed, but not no luxuries, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I think, you know, something that has really stood out to, to, I think a lot of people, is just this incredible patriotism that we're seeing from Ukrainians. And, and so I, I'm so curious about that. If you remember kind of the beginning of, of, feeling a real um, pride about Ukraine in, in, in 91, you know, like, do you remember that kind of like becoming, being established? You know, I, so I was about six and I don't remember, I don't remember that. Um, I don't remember much from that transition, except I remember Gorbachev on TV and like, like being really aware of, of, uh, of his birth birthmark on his head and, you know, just like things, just random things. I remember Jehovah's Witnesses on the main square in Kiev. I just remember this like more energy um, coming into the city when, you know, it became open to different religions. Um, but I don't think I became aware of patriotism. I think there was probably some of that, but I personally did not become aware of it until quite a bit later. And I think... A lot of those feelings, a lot of that, I, you know, awareness of my identity as a Ukrainian and sort of consciousness um, came um, as I began to observe um, Ukraine, people kind of rising up to the pressures um, from Russia and um, particularly in 2014 and really when when it became very clear that we still had to fight for our independence for our democracy that the soviet union that that breaking away was not it um uh we were independent on the paper um an independent sovereign na- nation but with our you know flag and our trident as a as a coat of arms and the national anthem and the constitution, but yet I think, I think it took years to sort of, it it was a process. It wasn't a kind of an overnight, um, uh, change. And, and Maria, I wanted to, uh, and we're going to get into sort of the story of your, your family in the church and the church itself growing in Ukraine. Um, because I know there's a lot of interest there, but one sort of final context question how how would you say that, and you've given some indication of this, but in general, over the past, you know, call it 
you know, 15 to 30 years, how how have Ukrainians seen Russia? Obviously, there's a there's a shared history to some extent. These and uh, do do Ukrainians see Russia as a sort of a sister country? Um, is it is there a rivalry there? Like, could you just give us a little bit more sense of what what the general feeling is of that relationship? Well, let me just start by the fact that I think that relationship has changed uh, a lot in the past couple of weeks. Yeah, I think yeah. there's definitely before that was a sense that we are brotherly nations that have common origins, which are, you know, Kiev and Rus, which is, was this state in um, uh, it was founded in the ninth century, I believe. But, you know, Kiev and Rus, this is where Russia, part of Russia and Belarusians and Ukrainians have come from. And um, so we have origins in the same place. Um, but, you know, a lot of Ukrainian history has unfolded under Russian rule, the Russian Empire, you know, the Soviet Union. There's there's been this sort of always this looming presence of Russia. Um, I think uh, but I think that, you know, people have gotten along. Um, there was always a sense of, you know, we speak uh, the same language we, you know, yeah, we, we, we have common origins, um, but it, it became, you know, very clear over the past decade or more that we had very different visions for what the two people, the two people want, want from the future and for their country. And since then, I think that attention, that, that relationship has, um, you know, uh, worsened, um, and the tensions have escalated, um, particularly, you know, since 2014, when Russia invaded Ukraine and has, you know, where the war has continued for the past eight years. Um, but I would say that in the past two weeks, it's been very hard to have any kind of brotherly feelings towards um, Russia. I mean, I've I've heard numerous people just you know just I mean I myself you know it's, it's like we are kind of like how can you be doing this to us mm -hmm. um it is very hard to uh witness that cruelty toward and you know toward a nation that was sort of just right there that we have relatives you know so many Ukrainians yeah. have relatives in Russia so many Russians have relatives in Ukraine um there's so many connections Yet, I think these geopolitical dynamics and just purely the cruelty of, you know, one man and his vision for what his country wants and not willing to embrace Ukraine as an independent country. And just, I think that has, I don't know, that, that's been impacting a lot of these like relationship dynamics. However, I have to say that there's been a lot of humanity um, that I've seen throughout even the past few weeks where Ukrainians have, you know, fed the soldiers that were captured um, and, you know, have, you know, let them call their parents um, and who, by the way, often don't know that their sons are fighting a war in Ukraine. 
Um, so there's been a lot of deception there too uh, on on the part of Russian government, um, which is also shows you know how what how what do they view their people as yeah. anyway. And so I think I think Ukrainians there's a lot of anger, but there's also an understanding that in some way Russians are a you know, victims of a regime yeah, and, you know, propaganda. And there's a lot of old people in Russia and a lot of them watch TV. And yet I think, as I've seen in the news, there's more awareness now. And so now the question becomes from the Ukrainians toward the, you know, to the Russians, now that you know and understand, why are you accepting this why are you not going out on the streets why are you not petitioning why are you not doing more and there's so much fear um that you know i think even those who sort of are trying it's kind of starting to dawn on them the, the the severity of this i think i think there's also fear um that's been instilled with them by the this this culture of oppression and uh, not free speech and all that, all that stuff. So anyway, I, um, yeah, I mean, I've been to Russia many times. I have Russian friends, um, you know, obviously language, we speak Russian, but it's been extremely difficult to have uh, feelings of compassion toward people who are just, you know, killing, shooting orphanages, killing civilians, children, mothers, who are inflicting so much suffering on, on the people. So it's complicated. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about your, can we talk about your family that's still there or, or in route? Yeah. So, yes. So, um, my family is now, uh, they're, so they're on the plane. As we speak, my, my parents, they are flying from Warsaw to Boston they left Kiev last week, I think Tuesday, I believe, or Wednesday, and they went to a little Western town. I want to say that my parents, the border crossing, I mean, obviously, I, I was very worried. And it's a very difficult journey because it takes multiple trips to the border. Then the, crossing the border itself is extremely long, um, a long process. Uh, and in fact, I didn't know, but they separate men and women to, well, at least really? they did at the, at the border, at the Polish border where my parents were. Um, and so when I talked to my mom, she was like, well, I crossed two hours ago and, you know, dad's still not here. So imagine, imagine what that's like um, to is. just be separated from someone you, who is a piece of home that is still there with you when yeah. you left home behind and then even that piece of home, you don't know where they are. And so, um, so anyway, but they reunited and they were helped by some family, the LDS members uh, in Poland. And uh, in fact, I think they were surrounded by, you know, angels who were, who were volunteers and, you know, also refugees who just did the same thing a few days ago. Anyway, and so they were helped to to the border, across the border, and then were driven for, I don't know, six hours to Warsaw, where they stayed and, and then flew out today. Luckily, they had tourist visas, so they had this privilege to come here. And this is not something that a lot of people have. They have to find a place to go in totally new place where they don't know anyone and, um, you know, 
go from there. But so that's the that's their their past week. Thank you so much for for sharing that and and doing this with us, Maria. As we sort of move toward wrapping up, I, I one phrase that I think has been on on my mind, but on a lot of people's minds, is the most one of the most basic gospel principles, which is our our baptismal covenant. You know, to bear one another's burdens, and obviously this uh, this uh, invasion by Russia, um, this you know slaughter of innocent people is an unbelievable burden for the people of Ukraine to bear. Uh, here, you know, as we sit here in Utah and in the States, it can feel very, our, our comfort can feel very uncomfortable. You know, I think there is a desire uh, on, on the part of many saints and, and all people of goodwill to help um, bear the burden of our Ukrainian brothers and sisters. But, the, but at the same time, it's difficult to know how to do that. Have, I, I'm sure you've thought a lot about this. How how can we, you know, as people here, you know, a, a world away, help bear the burden that, that you and your family and all Ukrainians are, are bearing right now? Yeah, no, thank you for that question. I think there are several different ways, um, but everybody everywhere can definitely help. And everybody's help is needed. Everybody's understanding of what's happening is needed. And everybody's witnessing of what's happening is needed. And let me just say, whenever anything bad happens, you can always bring food, you can always give money, and you can always listen. So I think all those things help. I think don't know what to say is a very interesting comment that I have heard. And so many people have like, oh, I don't know what to say. And well, here's what you can say. You can say that you acknowledge that what is happening is a tremendous tragedy. You can witness Um, that what is happening is incredibly difficult. You can, you can say, you know, I love you and I'm here for you. There's not, it's not hard, but I think in the simple acknowledgement and simple act of witnessing, you help and you, in the simple act of seeing someone, um, you help when we feel compelled to express love and when we feel compelled to express our feelings of empathy and love, we should, we should do that, you know? And I I think like there's often this like, Oh, maybe it's uncalled for or whatever, but I don't know if anything, I think during these past two weeks, I've been so much bolder about how I feel about everything including my expression of care and love for my parents, because I think, I don't know, I'm not, usually it's not extremely emotional or there's some reserve to the, to our relationship yet. I, I found this like incredible connection with them because you just realize that, I don't know, that (laughs) this is, 
life is precious, right? Peace is not something we take for granted. And anyway, and I'm and anyway, I'm just grateful to everybody who's who's um keep it, you know, supporting the refugee efforts and Ukraine and but and another important way to help is writing, engage, engaging politically and telling your representatives to put sanctions on Russia, to, you know, no fly zone over Ukraine, to, you know, create a program for refugees so they could come to the US. Um, I think that, uh, you know, there's individual efforts, there's community efforts, there's a lot to do. And so anyway, just pick what you right. pick what pick what sounds good to you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Maria. We're just so grateful that you open up and and help us witness what's going on. I think this is it's just so it it's so connecting. Like it's so far away. And and it, I think what you're describing just feels so connecting. It feels like these, you know, these really are our neighbors. So Thank you, Maria. We we're, really do we're appreciate happy it. Happy for your family and just so grateful. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you for that. having me. Okay. For this final conversation, we brought back Patrick Mason to help us think through some of the philosophy and theology of war and conflict, especially as we know that many of us may have had our easy assumptions about peace and violence challenged in the face of such naked aggression. Here's our conversation with Patrick. Okay, Patrick Mason. So, um, We've talked with you before about peace building and nonviolence. You've written extensively on the subject. And I think for many people, violence in a real and graphic way has been, you know, thrust upon us potentially in, in ways that we haven't seen in many years. Or, um, and when I, I yeah, I, I, obviously I'm speaking from sort of an American perspective that these are images that we're dealing with, which is, to be clear, nothing in comparison to what people in Ukraine are actually uh, experiencing. Um, but we are, you know, we are trying to process this and, and think through it. Um, as someone that's done so much work um, in the realm of, of nonviolence and peace building, how could you talk about just how you've been processing the last the last couple of weeks? Yeah. Um, th- thanks, Tim. I mean, yeah, I have to say that that I wish um, that some of the work and writing that I've done recently would be less relevant. Mm-hmm. Um you know the uh, and and in fact, I think when when David Pulsfer and I were, were working on this project and when we when we published our book, I, I think for a lot of especially American Latter Day Saints, it was a bit of a head scratcher in terms of like why are we thinking about issues of violence and peace? Like, I mean, that's that's not wow. you know, be, because we're so comfortable, right? Because we're so secure, be, because um, we're just blessed with with that, especially in the United States and in Europe uh, for the past several decades until now that it seemed that violence seemed very remote. Uh, of course, it's been happening all over the world. You know, I mean, think about the uh, the horrific violence in Syria and, in, in, you know, the Congo and in, in, in various places around the world. But uh, but there, there's something about this. I, I think the the brazenness of, of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, the way that it upsets what we thought was a really stable world order um, where where there was violence inside states. Right. But they were kind of like civil wars. Uh, but like one nation in, invading another nation with tanks and planes. And I mean, it's like mm-hmm. that we, we, we haven't seen anything like that in, in our history. So. So yeah, it's it 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 brings these issues to the fore 
uh, and brings a kind of relevance to, to say maybe we we should still be thinking about uh, issue, issues of violence and peace. And, and I think it's central to our faith identity if we say we're we're followers of the Prince of Peace. Yeah, I remember a chapter in, in um, Proclaim Peace about justified violence. And and there was, you know, kind of a long formula about like when violence really is OK and when when God's with you in your violence. And, and I, it, it, I, that was, you know, maybe my least favorite chapter because it's easier to just be like, I am all for peace period. And it's not complicated. And so I, I want to just talk about that. Like clearly defending yourself is always justified, you know, and, and, and in this situation specifically, it's, it, it feels so, you know, I don't know. It feels it it feels inspiring to watch Ukraine stand up and and feel so united together and and defending themselves. But can you just talk about how you you know how do you reconcile proclaiming peace and needing to use violence sometimes? Yeah. Well, you know, for for us I, I, as Latter Day Saints, the the key text here is Section ninety eight of the Doctrine and Covenants. Mm-hmm. This is exactly where the Lord laid out um, his uh, uh, the the principles. For, for saints to follow. I think the more broadly uh, applicable, but he, he frames it in the language of covenant, specifically with Latter-day Saints. Uh, and, and the key principle there, of course, is renounce war and proclaim peace. That is the, the church's position. That is the Lord's position. And, and in fact, I, I just want to read um, a little bit from uh, in 1942, the First Presidency put out a statement. It's the longest statement the First Presidency has ever put out on war and peace. And of course, this is in the context of World War II. Um, but the first presidency said, Christ's church should not make war, for the Lord is a Lord of peace. He has said to us in this dispensation, therefore renounce war and proclaim peace. Thus, the church is and must be against war. The church itself cannot wage war unless and until the Lord shall issue new commands. It cannot regard war as a righteous means of settling international disputes. These should and could be settled, the nations agreeing, by peaceful negotiation and adjustment. And so, so I think the, the principle is clear that, that Christ is the Prince of Peace, that the church is committed to peace. But even but within this revelation in section 98, it does lay out principles when um, it, the, the, the preference is always for the Lord's saints to proclaim peace, to um, uh, to, to forbear from violence. And actually it talks about the kind of spiritual rewards being greater for those who continue to do so. Um, but it does say that, that when you, an aggressor comes upon you repeatedly, multiple times, does not respond to, you know, entreaties for, for peace, does not respond to negotiation, then it does say that you're justified in defending yourself, uh, with violence. It, that, and, and that that term is really uh, it's consistent, and I think it's it's quite intentional in the sense that the Lord will make it right. Again, the the principle is that the violence itself is not right. Um, right. We, 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 I think we see the Ukrainians' resistance. We see it as courageous. We see it as noble. We see it as heroic. We see it as justified. But the fact is, when when they're taking human life, uh, that's still a tragedy, mm-hmm. right? That the God loves that Russian soldier who loses his life just as much as God loves the Ukrainian. Um, And uh, that's the basic principle that as Christians, we should recognize that every human life has equal dignity. But in these kind of political contexts, 
then the that the Lord says that, that there are times and, and principles upon which that violence can be justified. It's not holy, it's not righteous. We should we shouldn't. Um, so so I'm I'm a little uncomfortable with us um sort of uh cheering on the Ukrainians in in killing Russians. I, I'm not sure that that's the Christian response. Um but but I uh but but I do think that there's a way that we can recognize the justness of the cause uh, of, of those who are um, who tried diplomatic and peaceful means to, to resolve the conflict and then are defending themselves, their homes, their their nation, um, uh, hopefully, you know, with the minimal use of force possible in order to repel the aggression. There's there's yeah. also this notion that I've heard that the Ukrainians should just surrender, you know, they that. Uh, they should just let you know Russia uh, that let Ukraine become a part of Russia. No more life will be lost. Um, that kind of thing. And so, and I don't know. Maybe maybe in theory, there's there's something to that. But what do you what do you say to that idea? Like, is there is there something sacred about land and home where even where like say that there's some sort of you know diplomatic solution available that would um, potentially prevent at least in the short term further loss of life how do you, you know, how do you justify uh, a, a violent defense? Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, th- these are such complex moral and ethical questions. And, and I think, you know, Christians can, can and have come to, to different conclusions on this. So, you know, that there is a, a school of thought of just um, absolute pacifism of, of not taking up arms in any case for any reason. Um, uh, but even that school of thought, I, I think sometimes we confuse pacifism with passivity, uh, with the sense of just letting yourself be rolled over, whether as an individual or, or even as a nation. But, but actually, um, the gospel doesn't require that at all, that even if you're committed to absolute pacifism, that there's still, you can, you can take all kinds of active means of resistance, uh, just nonviolent resistance. And actually, we, we see Ukrainians doing this. I, th- I think it's not getting quite enough uh, headlines, but Ukrainians are doing all kinds of really creative, nonviolent things. And, and nonviolent theorists have been writ- writing about this for decades. So there's actually like literally a playbook of how to actively resist uh, violent aggression. And they're, so they're doing things like changing street signs or, you know, sabotaging um you know, so that the Russians don't know where to go or, or, or sabotaging property, uh, you know, so not at the expense of human lives, but, but doing things to slow down or, you know, the people standing in front of tanks. Right. So Ukrainians, yes, there's the violent resistance that we can talk about as being justified. But there's there's all of this nonviolent resistance. And, and we see examples of this throughout history. We, we, we saw people uh, in, in Den- Denmark nonviolently resist the Nazis and actually save thousands of Jews uh, nonviolently. Uh, obviously, we, we saw the way that Gandhi overthrew British colonialism. You know, the British were not friendly. They were not like nice people in India. That, that was a violent regime. And Gandhi used nonviolence to overthrow them. Of course, the civil rights movement. So, for Latter Day Saints, the the um, you know the key example is the anti Nephi Lehi's, who who went out and sometimes we we say they let themselves be killed, but but actually what the scriptures say is they went out to meet the aggressors. They went out to meet the attacking Lamanites. They were not passive. They were active in going out. They simply were not going to take the life of another Lamanite, but they actively defended their families. 
Uh, and yes, there was loss of life, but much less loss of life than there were in the context of other violent conflicts, right, where you've got two armies killing each other. So, look, when we, we, we can't change other people's hearts. We can't change Vladimir Putin's heart. Um, you know, if, if somebody is intent on using violence, uh, then there's a whole range of options that are available to us. But uh, but even nonviolence doesn't require passivity. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I'm cheering for those Ukrainians who, for whatever reason, whether strategically or out of a Christian faith, uh, are saying um, we're, we're going to actively resist nonviolently, but we will resist. I was listening to um, Bob Reese talk to BYU last week, and and he said he had had a conversation with you about the word pacifist and how that, you know, that that word has kind of taken on baggage. And so he says he calls himself a pacifist now just so that people understand that he is active, like he he is actively proclaiming peace, not just stepping out of the conflict. So yeah. I I and I, I want to talk about that more for, for people who are not really in a position of influence in the middle of this conflict, like what, what can, what is our role, especially in the church as proclaimers of peace? Because I think, you know, there's a way that, that proclaiming peace could be, could, could be articulated in a way that sounds like just non-support. It just sounds like to, especially to a, to, to someone with family in Ukraine that, you know, if you're, if, if I think there's a way to talk about peace that would just feel like you're not on my side, you know, or you're, or you right. left me or you're not bearing my burden. And, and so how, what can that actually look like where we're not in the middle of it? And it's easy for us to, to, to talk about peace when we have nothing to lose, you know, when it's not our brother or father or your, you know, yourself that has to, to meet the aggressor. What can, what can that look like? Yeah, no, such a good question, Aubrey. So I, the, you know, there's a common phrase that goes around, there's no peace without justice. And that's absolutely true. That that if if we were to say, hey, let's let's simply freeze things right now in Ukraine, right, and and just let Vladimir Putin take whatever he wants, right, uh, and impose a, a dictatorial regime on Ukrainians. Well, that you you could say, okay, we're stopping the fighting, uh, but that's not real peace. That um, the, actually, we talk about the difference between negative peace and positive peace. Negative peace is just you know, the stopping of fighting. And, and sometimes that's not a bad thing, right? Sometimes, you know, that's that can be preferable uh, to, to the loss of life, preferable to genocide. But it but it's not true peace unless the conditions are there on the ground for uh for, for justice, for human flourishing, for for self-determination. Uh and so even if the shooting were to stop right now in, in Ukraine, that that's not justice. Uh, and so as lovers of peace, we should also be lovers of justice. I, so I think one of the first things we have to do is we have to name evil for what it is. Mm. Uh, so what uh, and this is not about the Russian people. This is about, you know, the, the government that has decided to take this aggressive, violent action. It is evil. Uh, it's against international law. It looks like uh, there are clearly atrocities being uh, committed. You know, we'll, I'll let other people decide about war crimes and other things like that. But clearly, based on the evidence we see, there are atrocities being committed. So as, as lovers of peace, as peace builders, we have to name the evil, first of all. And then we work not just for the cessation of violence, but we work for the establishment of, of justice, of, of sustainable you know, democratic regimes where people determine their own future. Uh, and so we should 
uh, we should absolutely be advocating for that, for, for a return to, to a kind of a peaceful international order. And then, of course, the, the main thing that I think you and I can do, because, look, I, I can't change Vladimir Putin. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can't do anything there on, on, the, on, the, uh, on, the, on the front lines. Obviously, I'm, I'm praying that his heart changes, and I think we should all be doing that. Um, but, uh, but we should absolutely be doing everything we can to support the refugees and to, to ameliorate the humanitarian crisis, uh, both on the ground in Ukraine and for the now more than a million people who have left the country to open our arms, open our, our hearts, our, our homes, if, if that becomes necessary, if they come to the United States to provide resources generously to the people in Poland and Romania and, and other people in Europe who are going to bear the brunt of this, the largest mass migration since World War II. Um, and so, so we can, if, if we're here sort of comfortable in the United States, you know, uh, separated by an ocean uh, from this conflict, I think we can still be very active in doing what we can to relieve suffering. And what do you say, Patrick, um, to the notion that, and I think this is a very small minority, but I have heard it in terms of like talking heads a little bit on cable, or I even heard uh, somebody sat in a sacrament meeting where this, um, a, a friend of mine sat in a sacrament meeting where this notion was expressed, but that in some way, the Lord's purposes are being fulfilled through this, um, through this act, this heinous act, you know, that, you know, somehow connect the dots and the gospel will be able to be proclaimed or that this is ushering, you know, ushering in the second coming or whatever it is. Um, I think uh, maybe this is a bit of a slow pitch, you know, but like, what's, what's our response to that? (laughs) Well, so it, it, I, I think it's, um, bad theology based on a right premise. So, so the correct premise is that God can redeem anything, that, that we believe in a God and we believe in an infinite atonement that can redeem uh, all of humanity. It can redeem history. Uh, God can take the worst possible things and make good out of it. Uh, so that, I think, is, is a premise that as that uh, believers in God and as, and as Christians, we should hold fast to, that, that real trust and faith in God uh, and his redeeming power. But 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 we also believe in a God uh, for whom means and ends should be commensurate, right? That uh, you know the Book of Mormon is very clear about this. About you know the kind of uh, you know you, you know a tree by its fruit, uh, and and so so we do not cheer. We, we we don't think that good ends can come from from bad means. Uh, we certainly don't construct things in terms of our own human intentionality. Again, God can take bad things and turn them good, but we don't cheer on bad things uh, with 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 the hope that that they'll that they'll you know uh, that that somehow God is using uh, horrific violence or or, or especially uh, what really troubles me is this notion like that God would somehow uh, like plan this or be the architect of this that he would use the immense suffering of some of his children uh, to, you know, to, to go about and, and to accomplish his purposes. Um, that's at least that's not the God I worship. That's a sadist um, that, that, uh, and so it's, that's, that's not a God of love. That's not a God of mercy and compassion. So uh, God wants our means and ends to be commensurate uh, when they aren't because of sin uh, he can redeem it nevertheless, but that's, that's not plan A. Yeah. Yeah. 
Can we talk about a little bit about polarization? I know we've talked about this in the past, but this just feels like such a new, you know, heavy and just really charged topic that I, I, and I already sense it that, you know, it's really creating new division, even, you know, across an ocean. So how can you, how can we take this conflict that is already happening and, and use it to, to create stronger bonds inside our communities of care and, and, and disagree and have, you know, an evil enemy, you know, an evil government enemy without um, starting to villainize the people. This feels like so ripe for, for division. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely does. And yeah, as Christians, as, as Latter-day Saints, we have to be on the front lines of resisting that. Uh, if, if anything, if, if, if the church um, and the churches in general can do anything in this crisis, it's to provide a moral witness against that kind of polarization, against the kind of demonization that fuels violent conflict. Uh, because violent conflict is often, if not always, rooted in, in the idea that somebody else is lesser than me, right? That somebody else is the other, that they're fundamental, something about them is fundamentally wrong or inhuman. Um, that we have to witness um, that humanity's original sin, it was not Eve taking the fruit. Humanity's original sin was Cain killing Abel. That's, that is the tragedy of humanity. That is the first great sin. Uh, in the Bible, especially from a Latter-day Saint perspective, because we believe that it was a it was a fall forward, right? That leaving the garden was a good thing, right? So for us, that's that's not a a, a problem of what Adam and Eve did ultimately, but what Cain did to Abel, that's a problem, uh, and and we've been doing that ever since. And so as as Christians, we have to just say an absolute no to that, and a no to the demonization, a no to the othering, a no to the sense that Russians are evil. Or uh, uh, look, God loves Vladimir Putin, right? I mean, I think what what what's happening right now is absolutely evil. I think the decisions that are being made are absolutely wrong. But God loves Vladimir Putin, right? And and so we we have to pray for him. We have to pray for the Russian soldiers. We have to, this this can't be just God is on my side because God's on the side of all of, of his children. And so um, so if, if we can do anything as a church, it's to resist that. And I think we've had, we have the means to do that. I, I loved Elder Renlund's talk from General Conference recently where he talked about the Russians and the Finns sort of, you know, building bridges and the temple being a place uh, where we reconcile uh, all these things. That's, that is exactly what the temple is. The temple is, is the ritual means of healing all of the wounds in humanity. Uh, so all of the divisions based on gender or race or ethnicity or nationality, the temple is, is, is the place where, where we heal the wounds of Babel, where we heal the wounds of, of Cain and Abel. And um, so we as Latter-day Saints, we should, that's, with with all of our heart, might, mind, and strength, we have to provide a witness to um, to 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 our common humanity. It's beautiful. beautiful. Wow. Thank Anything you, Patrick. Else, Patrick? Yeah. Well, I, 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 I think I I just want to end with um, uh, with a statement, if, if it's okay, to read a statement from uh, President Spencer W. Kimball. Please. Um, so he wrote this. Um, this is from the Ensign in 1976. It was the, it was actually the 
the ensign that was celebrating the bicentennial of the United States. So most of the articles wow. were very like patriotic and nationalistic and rah, rah, rah. Uh, and President Kimball wrote his contribution to the ensign that month was called the false gods we worship. Um, oh, wow. it was, yeah, it was it was it was it was not quite so much the stars and stripes uh, thing. And he talked about various things, but then he talked about he, he talked about our, our, our idolatry as a people. And eventually he talked about the idolatry that we have towards the nation state and towards violence. And this is what President Kimball said. It's a little bit long, but I think it's worth it. Please. He said, we are a warlike people, easily distracted from our assignment of preparing for the coming of the Lord. When enemies rise up, we commit vast resources to the fabrication of gods of stone and steel, ships, planes, missiles, fortifications, and depend on them for protection and deliverance. When threatened, we become anti-enemy instead of pro-kingdom of God. We train a man in the art of war and call him a patriot, thus in the manner of Satan's counterfeit of true patriotism, perverting the Savior's teaching, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. We forget that if we are righteous, the Lord will either not suffer our enemies to come upon us, and this is the special promise to the inhabitants of the land of the Americas, or he will fight our battles for us. This he is able to do. What are we to fear when the Lord is with us? Can we not take the Lord at his word and exercise a particle of faith in him? And then this, this is the clincher. Our assignment is affirmative, to forsake the things of the world as ends in themselves to leave off idolatry and press forward in faith, to carry the gospel to our enemies that they might no longer be our enemies. And so I, I don't think we should take that to mean like that the Ukrainians turned their back on God and that's why, you know, uh, you know I mean, it has nothing right. to do with that, but but rather it's it's the affirmative assignment here that as Christians we have that we are called not to be anti-enemy, but we are called to be pro-children of God, that, that our calling is to reconcile all of God's children to, to one and to do so, if possible, through peaceful means. There, there's a time, as, as the Lord reveals, uh, in which he will justify uh, self-defense, but the, the, the commandment is for us to love one another and to, to pray for our enemies, to love our enemies so that they are no longer our enemies. Okay, that's it for this special episode of the Faith Matters Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we really hope that you've benefited from these conversations as much as we did. We want to extend a huge thanks to everybody who participated, Yaroslav, Austin, Maria, and Patrick. For those that would like to find out more about the resources mentioned in this podcast, please check the episode notes for links. And to all of our Ukrainian brothers and sisters, we continue to be inspired by your courage and resolve in the face of great evil. We see you, we hear you, we're praying for you, and we're doing our best to bear this burden with you. Sending love to everybody out there.